I had sold women's shoes all through college. The part that was hilarious is I'm colorblind. It was like a painting that's unfinished. And I want you to put your finest strokes on this painting. So we were not what I would call real city folks. We were on the fringe of the community. I worked for six months and did zero business. Hello there, this is George C. and you're listening to See the Future, a podcast focused on interesting conversations with interesting people in business, government, politics, and academia. Thanks for listening. I am privileged and proud to have one of my favorite people and dearest friends, Ray Nixon, with us here today. And welcome, Ray. Thank you, George. Glad to be with you. I really want to talk about... uh, several things, but I think we'll probably start with background and being a Texan and being a Longhorn and getting into business. And then further on down the line, I'd like to get into kind of your philosophy of life and advice you'd have for young people. Because one of the things I've been trying to do on these podcasts is have people who've lived lives and, and had things go their way in a lot of ways and give advice to Millennials and Gen Z young Gen Z young people that are trying to make their way and trying to find their way, and as we all know, when you're in your teens and twenties, the 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 road ahead is kind of mysterious at times. So, mm-hmm. why don't we start start out with that that you're My a background? transplanted Houstonian and yeah. how you got here and all that? Sure. So, uh, growing up in Houston, I was the oldest of three boys. My parents were alphabet challenged. There was Ray, Ron, and Rick. alliteration triple r exactly and so um uh from there i headed off to the university of texas and uh spent both undergrad and grad school there met my wife and uh while i was in grad school denise and from there i went uh after the mba program i went to work for the teacher retirement system as a stock analyst back at a time when uh most people didn't know what a security analyst was. It wasn't popular. We had been in a bear market for a decade in the stock market. More people were interested in the oil and gas business. My MBA class, I would venture to say 85% of them went into the oil and gas business. And there were only three of us that went into the, to, uh, the investment business. And this is uh, 1977. So the teacher retirement system got me a start and, uh, you know, uh, there are always lots of twists and turns in a career. When I interviewed for that job, uh, they called me up and they said, you finished second. And I was really bummed out about it, but I had some other job offers. And uh, part of why I was bummed was you, the job was in Austin, Texas. So it was like jumping into lukewarm water. And uh, I didn't really want to move if I didn't have to, being a native Texan. And... Uh, it turns out three days later, they called me up and they said, um, do you remember that we said in the process that there is no negotiation on the salary? The comp was $13,300. And I said, I do remember that. And they said, well, the candidate before you that beat you out, tried to negotiate, he's out. Would you like the job? And I said, uh, can I have a couple of days to think about it? And uh, I did. And the rest is history. I went into the investment business at a time which was very contrarian move. Uh, nobody was really very excited about me doing that. Everybody was making a lot more money in the oil and gas business. And from there, I spent about 18 months until uh, an opportunity came along in Dallas uh, with Smith Barney. 
to become a stockbroker. And one of the things that I was always paying attention to was my car that we were driving was a Pinto station wagon that my father-in-law had sold me for $2,500. If you recall, the Pinto station wagons had a tendency to blow up if you got rid of it. I remember him well. So does Ford. And, and so I guess he just decided he would get get rid of it and give it to his son-in-law. I wasn't really sure if I was a favorite or not at that point. But I do remember all the stockbrokers were driving uh, much fancier cars. And I thought, I've got to get to Wall Street. So in my uh, business, teacher retirement system would be considered the buy side, where, who had all the money. Wall Street is the sell side, trying to make sure that they help them invest it. And so that's how I started my career in the investment business. So you grew up in Houston, and Houston and Dallas have a mostly friendly, great rivalry. So what was it like moving to Dallas from Houston, and and why did you make that choice? You know, it's interesting because my family background in Houston was uh, one where I was bust to a very wealthy part of the city. At that time, it was Robert E. Lee High School. And, um, and my mom's family were all professional golfers. And my dad came from the oil field business in East Texas. So we were not what I would call real Houston city folks. We were on the fringe of the community. Uh, but I, by, by being uh, bussed into Robert E. Lee, I got to see uh, the more affluent areas of the city. Uh, I worked construction all of those summers, so I got to go around the whole city and watch it grow, especially w- driven by the high oil prices. So it was fun. It was a very thriving, wide-open cowboy town. The rodeo was really big in uh, Houston when I came to Dallas. Nobody cared about the rodeo. It was over in Fort Worth. So there were just uh, differences. You know, I'll never forget when I moved to Dallas, I went down to, and had uh, some Houston clients. And I was telling one of them, a guy named Charlie Miller, who was in charge of and built a money management firm called Criterion. I said, well, the weather in Dallas is way better than it is in Houston. And I could tell that it must have been a sensitive subject because he brought out a book and he showed me the various temperatures and humidity levels of Dallas versus Houston. I went, that's not the first time someone's challenged you on that, is there? (laughs) He was, needless to say, ultra sensitive. But I have found Dallas to be extremely welcoming, very warm. Clearly raising four children here has been uh, delightful. Uh, Two of my kids didn't want to leave it, so they're still here uh, to live in Austin. But it's um, in both cities... I think it uh, has what I would call the Texas culture, which is come on in. We don't really care who you are. Just uh, we want to see what kind of person you happen to be. We're very friendly. We'd like to get to know you. And the opportunities are endless. So I don't think I've ever told you this, but um, I'm going to spring it on you in this call. You're my favorite businessman. And whenever somebody says, who should I listen to who should I emulate in terms of building my career I say Ray Nixon and I I know an awful lot of super successful people in business but I really like the way you run your railroad so let's get into your business career Um, would you talk about by the way that's a very nice compliment George I'm I'm very grateful for that well you know it's a good compliment for me because I don't I know I I don't give baloney to people I really mean that so and and it's very sincere so 
Um, I, my judgment is you, you run your railroad as well or better than anybody I know. So, and I know a lot of people. <laughs> so anyway, would you talk about being a stockbroker and what you liked about that and how you prospered doing that mm-hmm. and beginning your career after being an analyst and then how that led you to Barrow Handling? Sure. So when I was invited into Smith Barney, I can't, I came in with the background of teacher retirement system. So I was to no more than everybody else. I was shipped off to New York City, and there were 50 of us, men and women, in the training class of 1979. In that class, I'll never forget that they came out and they said to us right at the very beginning, look around the room, only two of you will be left five years from now. Mm. That it was a great- comforting. Oh yeah, it was a big (laughs) washout. Now, with my confidence level having all of a year and a half experience at teacher retirement system, I went, well, I'm not gonna be one of those. And uh, so uh, I come back to Dallas after my training and I begin the process that everybody else went through, which is cold calling. And uh, my attitude was I would dial 40 people up a day and hope to get a few of them on the phone and to sell my Smith Barney contacts and uh, various stock ideas. Uh, what was interesting is that I worked for six months and did zero business. Oh, God. And here I am, the guy that's come in that already had the background that they said it's a shoe in. And I really had doubts about, could I do this? But part of why the business didn't come to me initially was that I made a decision early on that there is uh, two ways that you can do it. One, you can build relationships and work for the long haul, or two, you can be transactional and just do the immediate, whatever that stock business happened to be, sell an oil deal, a private placement, and um, whatever the firm happened to be shoving down. And I chose to build the long-term relationships. And part of that was, if it wasn't good for the client, I just wouldn't do it. I wanted and and uh, told them as we began relationships I want to be your partner, not a vendor. Which most people don't understand is very contrarian for the broker's business, right? Absolutely. Most people are just looking for the order, no matter what the order is for. Yeah, and, and what happened, though, was people finally started to see that that uh, style that I had was starting to work. And once it works, it builds on itself. And so at the end of five years, there was one other guy and myself, we were the only ones left, because most of the other ones had decided that they were going to do the transactional side. So how long were you at, at Smith Barney? I spent 15 years there. Wow, I've forgotten you were there that long. Yeah. And so what led you to transfer from there to Barrel Handling? What, what precipitated that? So I think everybody uh, talks about somewhere in their late 30s to early 40s, men and women, maybe I need, I can do this job that I'm doing in my sleep. I'd like to try a new challenge. Bob Buford would say that it's moving from success to significance. There might have been some of that in my thought process, but it was more of, I'm 40 years old. What's the second half look like? Let's try something different. One of my clients, a company called Barrel Hanley, uh, had called me up and said, we're interested in you being the first of the second generation. What's What's interesting about that story is that in uh, before I joined Smith Barney in 1979, 
the Republic Bank here in Dallas at the time called me up and said, we'd like you to come be uh, on our investment team. And a gentleman by the name of John Strauss interviewed me uh, It's for on a Thursday night dinner. The next day I had all these meetings with the Republic Bank key people, but something was funny because they were all running around and very mysterious and I saw them all whispering and I said, what has happened? It turns out that Tim Hanley, who was the chief investment officer for Republic, had been fired that day. Mm. And so what I did not know was about to happen uh, was that on that following weekend, they were about to form Barrow, Hanley, Mawinney, and Strauss. The people, three of them left Republic Bank. One joined them from First Boston as a stockbroker. And so I had had this initial conversation with them. They then became and opened their own money management firm. And I looked at them, having known them and interviewed them before, and said, well, they're not going to make it. And so I didn't call on them for three years. (laughs) And my uh, national sales manager, a guy named Dick Keating, calls me up and he says, how are those Barrel Hanley guys doing? And I said, ah, they're not going to make it. And he goes, well, why don't I just put a New York salesman on them to see? Well, no stockbroker wants anybody to be in their backyard messing with a potential client. So I said, let me call them one more time. And when I did, they were just about to take off in their business. Uh, They were being identified as a great value shop. And so for 15 years, they were my client. And then when I turned 42, they come after me to be the second generation. What a, what a twist of events to see that in my career of how they cross, we crossed paths several times. And why I chose to go there at that point was I wanted a new challenge. Most people don't know, but I took a two-thirds pay cut to go there. Everybody was slapping me on the back at Smith Barney going, boy, you've hit the home run. You're going into the money management business. This is going to be great. No more having to smile and dial for uh, all the different stock ideas that the firm was uh, pushing. And it turns out that um, it had lots of complications as I joined the firm. So I don't think many of the listeners to this call will appreciate. I want to back up for just one minute before we talk about Barrow Hanley and how much you grew that firm. That the late 70s was a Arctic blast for anyone in the securities business. Because mm-hmm. it outside of maybe the 30s, the 70s was probably the, the worst time to be in the stock market. The stock market basically went nowhere from 1966 to 1982. Mm-hmm. And if you cut out the high inflation in the 70s, you actually had like a negative 6% a year real return in the stock market. Uh, I think Newsweek had a cover in 1980 about how the bull, the stock market was dead forever right, or something exactly. like that, which is a great contrarian indicator. Mm-hmm. So why did you make that choice? What led you to that? Were you, were you fascinated by security analysis or did you like the markets or what, what led you that direction? Because like you said, everybody down here was going into oil and gas. Uh, one of the things that, that I happened to do was um, in trying to figure out uh, where I might enjoy working. Uh, and to give you some contrast, I think today the millennials want to find their passion right off the bat. I don't think the baby boomers were looking for passion. We were just looking to make a living. There's a major difference. And hopefully in making that living, you can find your passion and, and sometimes they work together, but not always. Um, for me, I had done an assessment. I took a yellow page, I mean a, a yellow pad, and went down the left and right hand side of the things that I liked and did not like. 
And one of the things that I thought I was pretty good at was um, that I could sell. And stock business required that. I had sold women's shoes all through college uh, of my MBA program. And the uh, part that was hilarious is I'm colorblind. So uh, when, a, when a woman would come out and say in the store, uh, I would like to see these, and she'd pick up the shoe, I'm going, I have no idea. Is that red, brown, green? What is it? So I'd always bring five of them at a time and say, well, I just thought you liked the shoe. You might want to try on different ones. And so one of the things I learned was they buy more than one pair. One one of the great things. (laughs) So my colorblindness served me well. That was a great strategy. And one of the fun (laughs) things about doing these podcasts, I learned something new about Mm -hmm. everybody. And you decided I'm a salesman. I know Mm -hmm. how to sell. Well, I thought that, okay, so... I looked at it this way. One, I enjoyed people. Two, uh, the stock business I thought would be something that would help them grow their assets. And uh, three, I liked the financial aspect of it because of getting my MBA. I really struggled at times going, I've got an MBA, therefore I need to go do analysis and be a financial analyst. And anybody can sell. What I realized is that's just not true. Uh, Many people are very uncomfortable with it. And uh, I also looked at, because my father had been in the air conditioning business, and uh, he my, actually I did my uh, professional report to graduate from the MBA on building an air conditioning company. And one of the things I learned was the margins were extremely skinny. He wasn't going to make much money. Didn't matter how great a salesman he happened to be. Well, I looked at the margins of the stock business and realized that they were terrific. Now, back when I got in, uh, there were many times if you traded an over-the-counter stock, you got 50 cents a share. So uh, you could make quite a bit of money in a in no time at all. And one of the things that happened for me in my first year, no business the first six months. Then the business started coming in. And I had been making um, $23,000 a year at Teacher Retirement System. And in my first year at... Um, Smith Barney, I made 72000 Wow. And I realized, okay, that's leverage. Which back then was big money. That was a lot of money. That was a lot of money. And I had, that was more money than my father ever made. Right, yeah. And so I realized, okay, this is fun. It's very intellectually stimulating. It's very challenging because, as you said, we were in a bear market, and we stayed in a bear market. But I think that that was a blessing for my career because... Um, you know, uh, Roger Staubach had a saying that I thought was really interesting. He said, uh, adversity reveals genius and prosperity conceals it. And I thought to myself, you know, when you get, to, when you start in a bad period, you, you have to learn to fight and to survive. Mm-hmm. And then when the good times come, probably too, there's a lot of competitions that's been weeded out. Right. So you've got a real jump running. ahead of everybody else. And for me, one of the fortunate things in my whole career is from the MBA program, nobody got in the investment business all the way through my entire career. It's always been a limited supply of people in that, which always made it good for me. <laughs> you know, one thing you point out, I think is so important for young people listening to this podcast is we're both analysts by trade, by training, all this sort of thing. And we all know people, whether they're executives or CFAs or MBAs or PhDs or whatever else, that are too important to sell. 
mm-hmm. so to speak. And and they they don't want to dirty their hands with selling because that's what that's what sales people do and all mm-hmm. that. But the reality in life is we're all selling something, right? Always. So if you're bad at selling, you're going to have a hard time having a fulfilling career because you got to sell yourself at a minimum. And sometimes, even if you're a highfalutin PhD CFA, let's say you're consulting, you have to sell what you're consulting and yourself is the right person to do that. So anyone who thinks they're too important to sell is too proud and they're they're actually pretty foolish. Mm-hmm. I think, too, if you bring an honesty to the selling where you where they can trust you and believe in you uh, and know that you really are uh, thinking about their best interest and that takes time you just have to build a relationship for them to know that Ray does really care about George's 401k what does that look like and how's he going to do that so um, and I think today everybody gets in a real hurry uh, the young kids want it all tomorrow, and that's just not the way the world works. Mm. No. So you started Bear Henley about 1994, mm-hmm. is that right? I joined in 94. And was it around $6 billion when you joined in assets under management? It was uh, 11. 11? Okay, 11 I thought billion. it was 6. Uh. So basically, during your time leading that firm, you basically grew it tenfold. That's that's correct. At the peak. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And for those of you all listening who, who don't know anything about the asset management or money management business, that is a really, really unusual trick to pull off, even if the market's going up, because it's a very volatile business. And you were on the institutional side of the business, which is pretty cold-blooded about performance. Either you mm-hmm. perform or you're fired, right? No, that's correct. So could you tell our audience how you had such spectacular growth over that period of time and what business leadership and philosophy you would credit to to that success? Sure. I would say, first of all, I didn't do that all by myself. There were lots of people that were involved in growing that business. And um, I think part of what I tried to focus in on was what does the team look like? And to think longer term about what are we going to be? Uh, for example, when I... Uh, described Beryl Hanley and was hiring somebody, I always um, mentioned that it was like a painting that's unfinished. And what I want you to do, George, is I'd like you to come and join us, and I want you to put your finest strokes on this painting, but only your very finest. We don't know exactly what the painting is going to look like in the end. We know it's a money management firm, but we don't know whether it's going to be global or not global. Uh, It turned out it did end up being global. And so it's, it never stops growing, and the painting is never finished. Um, I, my philosophy, too, was that uh, for the most part, I wouldn't hire anyone that I wouldn't invite into my home. So I wanted to make sure that character was a high uh, priority in the lives of all of my teammates. And I think people can say that all the time, but it's often difficult to determine when you're hiring. Uh, we wanted diversity. We tried to do as much as we could, both from a gender standpoint and from minorities. Uh, we had some success of that, some we did not. But I think that the maybe the number one reason that we did well was that um, the leadership that I decided to go with was one of a servant's leadership. Instead of what can all of you do for me, because I'm the big general partner right now and we're going to grow this firm 
Instead, it was, what can I do for you? What do you need? And then to turn you loose. So we were uh, a very flat organization. Uh, I'll give you an example uh, that we tried to get rid of the uh, infighting over whose office is the biggest because all the offices were exactly the same. Nobody had a corner office. All the corner offices were for conference rooms. I just eliminated that. Uh, we bought everybody lunch every day so that everyone would stay around and, and have a conversation about and get to know one another, not just about what's going on in their personal lives, but also what are you working on so that they would understand the whole firm of uh, what our mission happened to be. And I probably on a pretty regular basis continued to highlight to them what our mission statement happened to be. Because when I initially uh, took over, uh, one of the partners said, well, I sure would like a mission statement. One of the older partners said, well, we're, we're 15 years old and we've gotten this far without a mission statement. Why don't we keep going? Why do we need one? <laughs> Which was fairly humorous at the time. And uh, so I wrote a mission statement, a little tongue-in-cheek, but for real, which was have fun and make money. And it wasn't make money for ourselves. We were in the business of making money for our clients. And, but we had to have fun in order to do that. So um, we tried to keep a culture that was uplifting, positive, jovial. Um, there were plenty of very difficult trials in all that time period. It, it wasn't a straight line of growth. But I think that um, people understood what the mission was, which was to go and serve our clients well. They got that, and by turning them loose and hiring real self-starters, that was a lot of the, the, self, uh, the analysis of why it worked. So I'd follow up with that with saying, I grew up here. I'm fifth-generation Dallas, seventh-generation Texan, so I love this place. But when I was a kid, most of the businessmen I ran into at the Dallas Country Club or Coon Creek Club or Brook Hollow were pretty cold-blooded, and they didn't like kids too much, and they were kind of grumpy. And so when I started my career, I think I was influenced by my father and my grandfather, who were both just off-the-charts, high-integrity, great people, and they were lawyers. So I became a lawyer at first until I realized all my professional genetics, or at least a lot of them, were from my mother's people that were business people. And that's one reason of, among many that you're my favorite businessman is because you created a firm culture and environment that was positive, upbeat. Um, it was a fun place to go to work. I didn't, I never worked there, but every time I'd go over there, people were upbeat. They were positive. They were very professional, but it was clear they liked going into the office. Mm -hmm. That's easy to talk about. How did you build that? Because that was, to me, that's very different than old Dallas business culture. Mm -hmm. I, I would say that first and foremost, uh, I was interested in the people that were working for me. Uh, you know, I heard many times and saw it even at Smith Barney uh, that uh, they would go, well, that's Ray. I don't know his wife is Denise. I don't know that he has four kids. I don't know that he came from Houston. They didn't know anything about the individual. It's sort of, you're on the assembly line. I'm using you. And when you're, when you're done, I'm going to throw you out. That's not the way we did it. We invested in the people. We wanted them to make sure that they were appreciated from the receptionist, who is the window to the world, 
about our business, all the way down to whoever's doing the filing of the mail, all the way to the CEO, to the CFO, it didn't matter. Everybody had a role, and we tried to make sure that they appreciated that. I think that the culture was enhanced because you, a lot of people can do that. Uh, I think it was enhanced in a, a couple of episodes. I'll give you one. It's 1999, and uh, Barrel Handley has the worst performance of all value managers in the country. We're in the 99th percentile, and value is totally out of favor, just like it is today and has been for the last 10 years in the stock market. Everybody wants growth stock managers, not value managers. So not only is value underperforming, but we are the worst of the value managers. And we're being fired every week. And when you run institutional money, you're not being fired with uh, a client saying, give me my $2 million back. It's give me my $200 million back or my billion dollars back. And clearly it can be very sobering to the overall culture. I had one partner I'll never forget. He went into his office and he never came out. I had one partner that would cook lunch just to try to make sure that he, he didn't do anything stupid in the stock market. Um, but we came to a point where everybody was very fearful that we were going to have to start doing layoffs. And uh, everybody could see that how bad the numbers were. And uh, everybody heard every day about the firings. So I called a town hall meeting and I basically said it this way. Look, we're going to lock arms. We are profitable enough that we don't have to let anybody go. And here's what the general partner, myself, and the partners are going to do. We will take our our salaries to zero and not have anybody have a cut in their pay, but I won't write a check to come to work. Meaning, I'm going to zero, but that's as low as I'll go. Mm -hmm. That was so comforting to the people, and it was so overwhelming that they had not heard anything like that, that the partners would go ahead and take that risk on themselves with the idea that hopefully it would turn. If it didn't, we were going to be in trouble. But that was the kind of thing that, and we had several of those episodes, that I really do believe uh, built a cohesive bond among the employees of going, they care about me. This is a place that cares about me and they care about my input and I can make a difference. So that fun collegial environment, is that a product of your upbringing or your philosophy of life or your faith or the what do you just apply that to, to the holistic nature of your life? Where did that come from? Uh, I would say, well, I didn't witness it from anything that my father did in terms of business, but my dad had a great sense of humor. And, uh, and we, we, we very much appreciate it. I, I'll give you an idea. He's, he passed away 10 years ago, but I'll show you an idea of his sense of humor. Uh, he's sick. He's dying. He doesn't have long to live. My brother decides to go over and um, visit him and cheer him up. It's noon, and my brother knocks on his door, and my dad answers. He's in his pajamas, his slippers, his hair standing straight up. He's unshaven. And my brother Ronnie decides to get on his case, and he says, Dad, you, you got to get a shower and a shave and comb your hair and put on some clothes and get out of the house. He goes, what are you thinking? My father said, well, I was thinking for about a minute I was excited to see you. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And so his sense of humor my whole life, fortunately, we all appreciate The Nixon, the Ray Ron and Rick show appreciated his sense of humor. Uh, 
And life is, look, it's tough as it is. And business is tough. And there's plenty of times when you're failing. And uh, it helps to have an environment where what's really the most important thing? Losing a client, is that the end of the world? No, losing a child is the end of the world. And so you've got to put it in perspective. And uh, so we tried to keep it where uh, I didn't want people to think that we were just clowns. We weren't. But we enjoyed the camaraderie and the... And the uh, kidding around with each other. Look, the business was so, the money management business is so tough. If you don't kid around a little bit, you're probably going to lose your mind. Yeah, that's well said. So you've had all sorts of success and accolades. You've you've been a distinguished alumnus of the University of Texas Business School. You've been chairman of the board of the business school. You're on the board of Utemco, which most people don't know uh, is the largest university endowment in the world for representing two-thirds University of Texas, one-third Texas A&M. Um, but beyond all the accolades, uh, you're an incredibly generous person. And I, I would say the old accolade of God loves a cheerful giver, we're not perfect at that. And sometimes it's kind of a beatdown to have people asking for money all the time. But what's driven your desire to give back? and to pour into things that you care about? You know, I, I think part of it was a little bit of the education I got in watching my dad. Um, he was uh, not a Christian man at the time that I witnessed his generosity, but he was extremely cognizant of others' difficulties. I'll give you an example. Uh, the widows in our neighborhood, he would always go and make sure that they had flowers for the Christmas holidays. Everybody got a poinsettia, and the Nixon boys would go with him, and we'd all deliver that poinsettia. Now, he didn't have much money, but he could give that. And as I watched him, he never held on to his money tightly. He never had that much of it. In fact, he used to always kid and say, well, you know, his younger brother was a guy named Roy. He said Roy was the most generous of our whole family. And I said, give me an example. He said, well, if anybody needed money, Roy would cut you a check. He just didn't have any money in the bank. to, <laughs> So there were no funds. <laughs> Remind me your dad's name. Right. So you, that's, that's five R's. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but I think watching him uh, was part of the training. I think secondly, as my Christian walk developed, I, uh, developed a, uh, a strong appreciation of just what uh, God had done for me and uh, the generosity of, of uh, sacrificing a son on the cross for all of my sins was meaningful to me. And that grace that had been bestowed on me, I started thinking about it a lot. So I studied a lot about generosity. What's interesting is that I'm 38 years old and at that time, we were attending the Catholic Church, and the senior priest comes up to me and says, would you do the tithing speech? And I went, well, why, why are you asking me? You know, I sat on the front row with my family. That's because my wife was a Catholic in her upbringing. We were going to put all four kids on that front row. I thought, this, is, this was a bad mistake sitting on the front row. You saw me. <laughs> You're a target. <laughs> and, but anyway, I said, okay, I'll do it. Now, clearly, if you're going to go give a tithing speech, you better be tithing. And fortunately, I was. But I did ask myself, okay, is that, are you doing it the way that, because you're about to get up and reveal in front of a whole lot of people how you do it, why you do it. 
let's be honest about this, you know. And so the first thing I did was I went to a friend of mine who was an older man, and his name is Jack Turpin, and I said, tell me about tithing. And he said, well, first of all, Ray, it's not tithing. It's returning. None of it's yours. It all belongs to the Lord anyway. So once you recognize you're a good steward, of, or, or a steward, then try to be a, the best steward you possibly can be. So that was extremely helpful, and that started my journey on the generosity. And then I know probably uh, at times people will say this, but it's just what happened with me. I found that the more generous that I happened to be, the more God poured it on to me. And, um, and then it made me develop into a, a strategy of going, okay, we have more funds than we needed. Remember, I grew up a poor boy, so I wasn't really, it, it was just a way to keep score. Right. It wasn't that, oh my gosh, I need the next biggest house and I need the, all of the toys that come with it. I, those weren't really of interest to me. I was more interested in going, okay, I've been in charge of these funds what can I do with them? And um, I happened to come across and think about the five social ills of the world, those being spiritual emptiness, a lack of leaders, the sick, the poor, and the uneducated. Those have been around since Christ walked the earth. So those are still the same ones we have today. So in our generosity, Denise and I started planning of going Let's go for best in class that would address spiritual emptiness or leadership or the sick or the poor or the uneducated. So our generosity was driven in that direction. A good example would be in the, on the leadership front, since we have a lack of leaders. And I wanted to make sure that uh, uh, I promoted my foundation, uh, foundational values. We gave a lot of money to Dallas Theological Seminary to raise up more pastors all over the world, so the global reach. At the same time, though, we uh, gave uh, scholarships to the University of Texas with the idea of raising up the minority students, only the minority students, where, where our scholarships were going, with once again to show them our foundation of what we believed in. It was a chance for me to say, not only can you get a good education, but come meet me and let's talk about what I believe and why would I give you that money? Why would Denise and I want to support you? And clearly it's, uh, in some uh, ways, it's um, selfish on our part because the state of Texas has been great to me and uh, I want it to be great for all the next generations. So that generosity uh, from our viewpoint was to help in the future. But also I've, I've learned through the years that generosity is taught. It's not inherited. You got to see it. You know, um, who was it? It was Albert Schweitzer said, um, example isn't the main thing in influencing people. It's the only thing. So when people see it, then they go, why? And hopefully then that gives you the chance to have an opportunity to have a conversation that can share what your beliefs are. Well, God bless Skip Ryan. He's a dear friend and I love him to death, but I, I wish that he and others at Park City's Presbyterian Church had had you giving the tithes and offerings speech every year <laughs> because Skip was terrible at it. 
and most of the people they got together were pretty bad at it too. So you could have improved their their uh, their pitch for sure. Uh, as we close this podcast, uh, I'd like to ask you kind of more of a fundamental question for millennials and, and Gen Z people. Let's say you have a young woman or man who's competitive and ambitious like like we are and were, but they want to live life the right way. And they don't want to buy into the old Texas business lie that you keep score by how much money you make. How would you give them not only a definition of Ray Nixon's version of success, but success and significance at the same time? How do they actualize that over a multi-decade career? Yeah, you know, I, I think with that too, they need to think about failure. Um, you know, there's a couple of ways that I used to think about it. One of those being uh, failure doesn't define you, it refines you. And so that's going to come along because uh, Bill Gates just recently put out something I thought was fascinating in regards to success and failure. He said it's not binary. And I think that the millennials think that it's binary. Mm-hmm. It's one or the other, and it's not. It's a process that takes place. Um, and for me, um, I would tell you that in my career, there were several things that uh, drove me in terms of my foundational truths. One of those was um, integrity trumps everything. So let's just start with that. Whether I'm selling a Smith Barney product or working at the teacher retirement system or running Barrel Hanley, let's start with that in their lives. I would say that a second thing that's occurring today is recency bias is something that we all are inundated with from uh, the media. Another way of thinking about it is short-termism. I'll give you an example. Uh, The uh, Federal Reserve has pumped all this money into the system. They've bloated their balance sheet. My grandchildren are going to be shirtless and beggars on the street. Short-termism, it's going to happen tomorrow. That's not necessarily the case. Let's try to think longer term. I gave this exact advice to uh, Jay Hartzell, our president, just last night as we were talking about some of the issues that he's dealing with at the University of Texas. And then I would say in their career for the long haul, the third one that I tried to always focus on as well is Am I honestly pursuing the truth? What does that truth look like? And I'm not just referring to spiritual truth. I'm talking about what is the right truth for George in his asset allocation? Make sure that we're, we're, and is that appropriate for him? As opposed to, it's not really the truth, George. I've kind of fibbed and we're not really giving you what you need. I think too that um, for me, and I can't stress this enough to these millennials, the more you think longer term, which is what I did as a stockbroker, the better it will turn out in terms of the results. I put um, on my whiteboard in my closet for 15 years, I wrote something down, which was my direction for life, given to me by Chuck Swindoll out of Deuteronomy 6. Mm. So I listened to him when I was about 38 years old, And he said, put that on your board. And so I wrote it on the whiteboard and I read it every day. It said, fear the Lord greatly, 
trust the Lord completely. That's the one I think that the millennials have a hard time with of going, am I trusting in the path that I'm going down? I, I freely admit in the early parts of my career, I chose a path and said, Lord, please bless it. Instead of going, what path do you want me on? And um, also on that whiteboard, which teach the young diligently, as all these millennials are starting their families, uh, I would encourage them to please talk constantly about what their foundational values happen to be. And lastly was the love of the Lord fervently. Those were pretty good four suggestions out of Deuteronomy 6 that really helped me. And I think that for the millennials, um, understanding and trusting in who they're doing their journey with is the biggest part of life. And I am fortunately, the Lord found me and that's who I chose to, to walk with. That's a perfect place to stop. Ray, thanks for taking the time. It's been a real privilege and pleasure. And uh, I'm grateful for you and I'm grateful for the example that you're setting for young people listening to this today. I'm grateful for your friendship. Thanks for asking me. Thanks for listening to See the Future. This is George C. And I'll hope you join us for our future conversations. 